All right, if you can make your way back to your seats, please. We're going to get ready to read the Bible. Ten-second warning. Make your way back to your seats. All right. So every week here at City Light Church, we read the Bible and we teach from the Bible because we believe that it is God speaking to us. This afternoon, we are reading only five verses from Matthew chapter 7, the beginning of the chapter. So sentences 1 through to 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the Word of God. All right, well, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Jeremy, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's great that you could be joining us right at the end um, of our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and it's exciting that Christmas is coming up. Who are, who are the people who actually get excited about Christmas coming through? Yeah. And for the rest of you who hate joy and laughter and good things, um, I hope you have a really fun Christmas and all the people around you. Uh, you know, as, I've, as, uh, as we've had kids, um, I've probably got more excited about Christmas as it comes up, just because they're just so pumped about it. Um, they don't have a great sense of time either, so tomorrow, next month or whatever, is, they're equidistant in their mind, so they're, they're hyped every day about Christmas, um, but a great time to be celebrating. The other thing is, if you, um, if you wanted to prepare for Christmas well, the, so I posted a, a PDF in the group um, about, it's just called like Advent readings. If you don't know what Advent is, it's nothing superstitious or whatever. It's just something that Christians sometimes do and have done over the centuries to prepare for Christmas because it's one day in the year and it can kind of come and go and especially at a busy time. Um, but there are some readings there that go through Luke that kind of are preparing our hearts and minds for a, a time where we celebrate something that's pretty significant. They claim that God actually came to earth and walked among us and spoke to us. So if you want to jump on that, they've been great. You can drop it in if you've got an iPhone and iBooks as well. It makes it easier to read. Um, but that would be great to get onto. But, um, well, look, it's, as we approach Christmas, it's pretty appropriate that we'd be in the Sermon on the Mount on Jesus' manifesto on discipleship, this block of teaching that he has explaining what it's going to be like to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and so um, the, as we come toward the end of that, we hit this command, which is reasonably clear. Jesus starts, and if you were to sum up this whole section, it's in two words. He says, judge not. That's a pretty obvious command. He starts by saying, judge not. The problem is, we love to judge things. And maybe, maybe I'm throwing you in on my own thing, but, and maybe it's better or more accurate to say, I like to judge things, because I know that that's a habit that I have. Even this week, in reading a kid's book with my kids, a three- and four-year-old, we're reading through a book called, like, The Stinky Bear or something like that. I know, right? And um, I was reading it through, and I'm like, oh, the rhyme in this is so weak. 
<laughs> I was like, he's clearly chose that word first and engineered the whole passage around that. And it's falling in and out of meter and all this kind of stuff. And I was in it like rolling my eyes and making jokes about it with the boys. And it's going straight over their heads, of course. Like, they don't care. No one ca- I mean, you guys don't even care, right? You're just pretending to because it's polite. But it's, um, it's ridiculous the kind of things that can draw an opinion or a judgment out of us. We do. We do it all the time. We do it subconsciously. We do it constantly. We judge. And Jesus says something not vague or ambiguous or weird. Or what does he mean by that? He just says, judge not. And there's more to it than that, obviously, that we're going to dive into. But it's, uh, it's an incredible thing that Jesus commands. And probably there's no more apt time than to think about it, even in the midst of 2016, at a time when there has really, I guess, in Western culture, not been uh, more of a motivation or need to be tolerant. Uh, Jesus' commands and Jesus' words are pretty pertinent. But the problem is that even though the need for tolerance maybe has never been greater, the understanding of tolerance and what it is and why we should do it has never been foggier. The confusion around what it means to tolerate, the confusion around what should be tolerated or what shouldn't be and what intolerance is or what's offensive and what not, nothing, it has never been more confused before. And Jesus' words in this section are going to bring some real clarity to it. And it's going to define two things that are absolutely imperative if you claim to be tolerant or you want a tolerant society or however you want to put it. Jesus brings clarity around what tolerating is and what the motivation for it is. And without those two things, there can be no tolerating and no genuine tolerance. And so I'm going to pray that as we walk through this passage that he'd be opening our eyes to see it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of grace, that you don't leave us in darkness, but you lead us by your word. And we pray that as we look at your word in Matthew 7 today, that we'd be moved to hear the words of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit to obey. That our desire to obey would not come from a desire for your approval, but knowing that that Christ has won our approval in you, that our desire would be to seek joy by living out what you have prepared for us. We pray that you'd call us to be a radically tolerant people. pray that you'd call us not to judge, but to understand the depths of your grace that it might transform our lives and our hearts such that we would treat people rightly as you would have us treat them. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. So the question we really need to start when it comes to toleration is this. What is tolerance? And to help kind of explain it, I've got a short illustration that, I mean, we'll see whether or not it explains anything at the end of it. But it was, a, it was one that was popularized by Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. And you're like, oh, not him again. But um, <laughs> he popularized this story in the 18th century. And, um, and this was probably a, a reasonable representation of how they would have understood tolerance. And it goes like this. Uh, well, this is sort of part of it. I'm giving you the shortened version. There's a father... And he has inherited a magic ring that brings him favor with God and with people. And he has three cherished sons whom he loves equally. And over the course of their life, at some point during their life, to each of his sons at separate times, he has each promised them the ring. As he gets older and he's approaching death, he realizes uh, that he's painted himself into a corner and he's promised all of his sons the ring, but obviously can't deliver on that. And so uh, he decides to do something about it. He goes to a master jeweler, and he has two rings made that are identical to the original. So they cannot be distinguished by the eye as to which one is the genuine one. Even the father himself can't tell. And one by one, he calls his sons in on his deathbed and gives them a ring each. Then he passes away. The sons have their rings, 
and they realize what's happened pretty quickly and they start to fight amongst themselves as to who has the genuine ring. And uh, as a result, they go to a wise judge and the wise judge declares this to them. He says, If each of you in truth received his ring straight from his father's hand, let each believe his own to be the true and genuine ring. And the illustration was supposed to make this point about tolerance. There is a truth out there that is true and someone may have it. But because you don't have the means to prove that you are the only one who has the truth, you need to tolerate the fact that other people have different views to you. Because you think you're true, and they think they're true, and one of you is right, but because you can't prove categorically who's wrong, you should tolerate one another, and you should tolerate other worldviews. The belief was there is a truth, but because you can't prove that you're the only one who has it, tolerate each other. Now, that was the old definition of tolerance. But that definition has changed. If you were to give a 21st century example of that story, it would go something like this. As a father, has a magical ring, gives you faith with God and people, and uh, he you know, promises it all to his sons on his deathbed, gets the rings made, all that kind of stuff. They find out that they've all got the ring. They go to the wise judge, and the wise judge says this. You fools, don't you realize that what makes the ring magic is that you believe it? And so each of you has an equally magic ring because you believe it to be so, and that's what makes it significant or important for you. And you see the difference in those views? One says tolerate each other, because yes, one of you is right, one of you is wrong, but you can't prove it definitely, so you need to put up with each other. The other one says tolerate each other because they're just as right as you are. And that's a subtle difference, but a significant one. Toleration used to mean the acceptance of the existence of different views, Now tolerance means the acceptance of different views as equally true. And the question really is, why did this happen? Why would there be such a fundamental shift in the way that we understand truth and what's going on? Well, the last two to three hundred years, or maybe more obviously in the last 50 to 60, God has not just moved to the periphery of culture. He's basically evaporated from mainstream culture. We've moved away from God as being central to our understanding of meaning and truth and life. And in particular, I mean, uh, uh, in 1892, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a, a poet and philosopher, kind of called it early. And he was in a context in which 90% of the people around him went to church every single week. So think about that. Nine out of ten of your workmates were at church on a Sunday. And he looked around at the culture and he said, God is dead. And what he meant was, functionally, God is dead. When people are looking at the key issues of truth or meaning in life, They're not looking to God. And he called it early. In his generation, mankind had become the measure of all things. We didn't believe that the truth or the answers were going to be found in God. We thought we, as humankind, through scientific endeavor, are going to find the answers to life and meaning and the universe. The truth was out there. Science would discover it. But over time, the limitations of science to answer key existential questions, the disillusionment after two world wars meant that we retreated back towards ourselves. Instead of believing that in mankind would be found the answer, we decided in ourselves would be found the answer. We retreated back toward ourselves. There was a loss of confidence in humanity, and so we changed focus. And with that came a whole new language and vocabulary. So was born the the glossary of self-worth and self-esteem and self-understanding and self-discovery and self-respect and self-satisfaction and so on and so on and so on. And this shift came to mean that the outside world was no longer considered the arena in which to find meaning and truth. Where I would find meaning and truth was going to be in here, in myself. 
And if you want to understand what that shift kind of means for how we understand the outside world, think of it with this kind of illustration. Imagine someone standing before a waterfall, say Niagara Falls, and they're standing at the lookout, and kilotons of water are pouring over the precipice every second, minute, whatever it is, and they look out and they say, this waterfall is sublime. Under the previous worldview, what that would have meant was that this waterfall has some characteristics in and of itself that make it incredible. The power, the surging water, just the the beauty of it, right? In and of itself, it is valuable. And I'm looking at it and saying, this waterfall is sublime. What that means now is one, one thing slightly different. The understanding of saying this waterfall is sublime now means the way that waterfall makes me feel is sublime. The feeling that it gives me is significant. Now the, the things out there are not significant in and of themselves. The significance is how they make me feel or the experience that they can give me. And one of the ways we see this worked out is through social media. Social media doesn't produce these changes. It's just a platform to show us what kind of changes have happened in the way we understand the world. And one of the classic ones would be a wedding cake rock. It's, uh, it's an Instagrammer's mecca. I don't know. I don't have Instagram, so I'm just... No judgment. Um, <laughs> on you, not me, <laughs> obviously. But, um, but getting to it, we'll get to that bit later. Getting to it, right... Wedding cake rock is a significant kind of geological phenomenon, right? It's a, a rock that has got such a sheer edge that it's, it's, it looks like it's been formed by human hands, even though it hasn't. And it looks like a wedding cake. It's this beautiful kind of white rock. And, um, and you'd think if people were going there to behold the beauty of wedding cake rock, you would go there without a camera and without a phone and without Instagram. But it's become popular not because of it in and of itself, but as you go there... You can take a photo of yourself there and other people can respond to it. And so the meaning of the rock is not that it's a significant thing in and of itself, but it shows something about me. Or even going further into it, a a friend of my wife's who works in the fashion industry would say they would go to expensive networking events where the food was top shelf, but people would take photos of it for their Instagram account and not finish their their meal because they were so weight conscious. And the significance of the food was not the creativity put into it or the flavor or the mastery of the chef who actually created it. The significance was, I'm I'm the kind of person that eats at trendy restaurants. There's been a shift. What makes something significant is not the thing in and of itself anymore, but how I feel about it. And this has affected our view of tolerance because what the question used to be, is it true? And the conversation has moved to, is it offensive? Because what matters now is not whether or not the thing is true in and of itself, it's how I feel about it. And the worst way I can feel about something that's true is that it offends me. And so the conversation has shifted, and this has had significant consequences. It's had significant consequences on things. Recently, Ricky Gervais posted a photo uh, of, a, of a, an image that was banned from an Ikea shop front. And it was a, like, probably looked like nine, 12-year-old kid. And he was... Um, he was pretending to have a mustache. I think it was like a Christmas installation or something like that. And so he was just going like this. And there was an outrage and it was banned and actually taken down because people thought it was evoking Hitler. And it was just a kid pretending to have a mustache. And Gervais's comment was, PC madness. The idea that things are just being censored at a rate. Many comedians have reflected they used to be censored by the religious right and now they're being censored by the progressive left. Things have changed. And comedians are at the forefront of it because they use offense as part of their artwork. That's how they critique things. Ellen recently, who has a a daytime TV show, 
um, was, um, was harassed for, for making a joke about Usain Bolt that was taken to be racial. She's a personal friend with it. He didn't take it that way. It seemed uh, absurd, and yet it happened. But more seriously, some of the older generation on the progressive left are shocked by what's happening in universities. That there are places called safe spaces where universities in their generation were the place for exchange of, it, of dangerous and full-on ideas. That universities were the forefront of culture where you could talk about anything. And now there are spaces where you can't. They were shocked by things like, uh, like the response to microaggressions. That there are these little ways that you can be aggressive to one another in a micro... Which, I mean, you'd kind of think by definition isn't aggressive. But anyway, like, that's what happens. And the, the amount of censorship and the like has, has shocked them. And the quote from S.D. Gade is this. He says this. Political correctness used to generally center on issues that were quite substantive. Today's PC culture, however, is intolerant not of substance, but of intolerance itself. Although the politically correct world would have a great deal of difficulty agreeing on what constitutes goodness and truth, they have no trouble agreeing that tolerance itself, uh, intolerance itself is wrong. Why? Because no one deserves to be offended. More seriously, in a case uh, in France, where Michel Hulbeck, or something, I don't know how to say it, somebody French can... Have a go at that. Uh, but an award-winning writer, National Treasure, had criticized a religious group and was brought into court for defamation. And Salman Rushdie wrote an article in The Guardian because he took this pretty seriously himself, uh, knowing the issues around freedom of speech. And he said this, there cannot be fences built around ideas, philosophies, attitudes, or beliefs. He was saying under the old tolerance, you could criticize anything. It was your right to. That's how, because if the truth was out there, we needed to protect it. But the conversation has shifted to, is it offensive? And if it is, well, we don't really need to talk about it. Now, I want to put to you what Jesus says on toleration answers the questions and answers and speaks into the fogginess around PC culture, around tolerance, around all this stuff. And listen to what he says in Matthew 7, 1 to 3. He says this, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus says, do not judge. But we use this term pretty loosely. What does he mean by don't judge? We judge all kinds of things. You can judge uh, a dog show. You can judge a wine competition. You can judge a TV. You can judge all kinds of things. Is Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, you must be opinionless? Anytime you feel yourself forming an opinion, just, just suppress it until it sort of passes by you. And then that will be obedience. Is that what Jesus is saying? That you cannot assess things, you cannot critique things. What does it mean not to judge? Well, this word has a specific meaning in the way that Jesus used it and in the way the Bible used it. The word here to judge is speaking of, often, the final judgment of God. The call of the Scriptures is that God will judge and call to answer all who have lived. And He will stand there and adjudicate and He will judge righteous or unrighteous, evil or good. That God will judge. And the word carries this kind of meaning. And so Jesus is saying, do not judge. And he, well, when am I going to be in the context where I'm sitting on the throne of the universe looking out over billions of souls and making calls on it, right? Well, no, what he's saying is, we're not to judge like God judges. We're not to stand there and pronounce on someone, I'm innocent, you're guilty, I'm better than you. That's the judgment that he's talking about. You cannot sit there as though you're innocent. There are shows that are really built 
on, on creating and evoking this sense. We do it, don't we? We judge others in that way of, I'm innocent, you're guilty, because it makes us feel in a small way like God. To be able to stand and pronounce judgment over someone else and say, in some small way, I am better than you, gives us a kick. A current affair is usually about a half an hour that feeling. Looking at other people and what they do and going, I would never do that. I could never do it. I would never live like that. I would never be so lazy. I would never be such a cheek. I would never act like that. And you can sit there in judgment and feel almost from your living room godlike as you pronounce judgment on other people's lives. Oftentimes the religious right has taken aim at things that they won't be charged of. They've taken disproportionate aim in the homosexual community because if you are not attracted to the same sex, then God telling you not to, to act on those feelings is, is the same as him telling you not to fly. You can obey it that easily. And so they can stand in judgment on another community and say, they are wrong and I'm right. They're guilty, I'm innocent. But it's not just religious communities that do it. We all do it. Gossip is essentially that. When we get together with a whole bunch of other people and we look at someone else or another group or our bosses or whoever it is and we get together and we're like, look at these morons, these idiots. I can't believe they would act like that, talk like that. Think of the, the work context you're in. That's what happens. Think back to school. That's exactly what bullying is, isn't it? It's the delight of saying, I'm popular, I have social capital and you're a loser. It's saying, I'm innocent, you're guilty, I'm attractive, you're ugly, I'm smart, you're stupid. Whatever it is, to judge is to say, I'm better than you, and it makes us feel powerful, and it makes us feel in a small way almost godlike. And Jesus says, you can't do it. And we all do it in every corner of society. I even read an article recently on a, a child murderer who was in prison who had boiling water poured on him. And the comments on, on the article on Facebook were all like, Finally, he got what he deserved. But as I thought about it, I thought, isn't that interesting? That even in prison, where people are condemned, they're in prison because they are guilty of something. Even in prison, there's still someone to look down on and to judge. You're like, I'm a murderer, but I'm not a child murderer. I've done things, but I haven't done that. In many ways, we need it. We all do it because it makes us feel in some way powerful. And so Jesus defines intolerance as when we judge someone and say, I am better than you. And so now we move to the motivation. Why is it that we're called not to judge? Why is it that Jesus says not to do it? Look at his words in Matthew 7. He says this. It will come up on the screen for you. It says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The motivation not to judge is that you will not be judged. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Is he giving us a horizontal motivation where Jesus is saying, don't judge people because if you're a judgy person, people will judge you. It's just good social practical advice. That if you're the kind of person that looks down on people all the time, they're going to look down on you. You kind of, you reap what you sow and that's it. Well, I don't think so for a couple of reasons. The first one is, that's not very strong motivation, is it? If you have an issue of judging others, if you have an issue of doing that kind of thing, then it's, it's going to be the case that that's kind of weak motivation. If you often judge people and, and you're like, well, don't do that or they'll judge you back, you might be like, well, I don't care because they're idiots anyway. I've already judged them. So what's the point? It's not a strong motivation. But the second one is that it's simply not true. 
just because you're someone who actually you know, doesn't judge other people does not guarantee that other people won't judge you. They may even judge you for that specifically. Even in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, when he's laying out the blessed, he says, blessed are you when other people revile you for righteousness' sake. So Jesus is saying, not only if you judge not, does that not guarantee that you won't be judged, he's saying some people might even revile you for the very fact that you act that way. So it can't be that. The real meaning is, he says, don't judge, otherwise God will judge you in that final judgment. You will be judged. The measure you use will be measured to you. You might be sitting there, like, especially if you're here considering who Jesus is. You might be like, well, that sounds really tolerant, doesn't it? God says, don't judge or I will mega judge you, right? That's your motivation. You're intolerant. Well, God will be 50 million times as intolerant toward you, so get on it. God puts you, what he is saying here is actually pretty profound and it's ingenious. In the Bible, there are only two measures, the measure of works and the measure of grace. There are two ways to be right with God. It's either works or it's grace. Works means I do it. It means I will get approval with God by doing the right things, by keeping his laws perfectly. Jesus summed it up as love God and love your neighbor. To obey him means to perfectly love God and to love the people around you. If you keep that, you'll be righteous according to the measure of works. The problem in the scriptures is no one has done it. Romans 3 tells us clearly there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned. All have turned away from God. No one will make it by works. And so we see that there is another way, that Jesus himself is the other way, that the reason he is here and speaking to the crowds is because he has come down as a man to live the righteous life that we didn't live, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, to love his neighbor as himself even when he is being murdered by the very people he is there to love even when he is on the cross and they are calling out, crucify him, and they are mocking him, hail king of the Jews, and they are saying to him, if you were really powerful, you would get down from the cross, and yet he is demonstrating the power of God, being nailed to the cross, bleeding from head, hands, and feet for the people who are mocking him. And he dies and rises again to demonstrate that he has the power of indestructible life, and he offers it to any who would have faith in him. But the next bit is what counts the most when it comes to tolerance. Because the truth is, as incredible as the gospel is, and as amazing display of God's love as it is, I would never have responded to it if he hadn't put his spirit in my heart to turn my heart from my sin. Sin is an addiction such that you don't even want the cure. And God knows that, and so he puts his spirit in our heart to turn our hearts toward him, that we would trust Christ for our righteousness. That's how deep grace goes, and that's why Jesus says, do not judge. He says, because you logically cannot. You cannot sit there as a follower of me, Jesus is saying, and judge other people and say, I'm better than them. The ground at the foot of the cross is completely flat. There are none righteous, not even one. And so Jesus says, measure for measure, the measure you, you judge people upon will be the measure used against you. If you want it by works and you judge people according to what they've done and there's a scale and who's better and who's worse, he says, that will be the measure used against you and that is not good. And he says, but if you trust in the measure of grace, then you live by that too. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you cannot stand in judgment over anyone else. There's a great old phrase you might have heard that says, there but for the grace of God go I. For anyone who truly believes the gospel, if you look at anything, as a Christian, you can see something horrendous and call it for what it is, and yet still say, 
there but for the grace of God go I. If the grace of God had not restrained me, had not held me back, I would have, could have, and, and certainly should have done anything that I've seen out there. Jesus says, don't judge. And here's what's amazing about Jesus' words concerning tolerance. He says, you can, you can clearly call out what is an evil act without ever saying, I'm better than that person. You can clearly call things for what they are without ever saying, I'm better than them. The new tolerance struggles sometimes with the language around calling out things that are clearly wrong. And yet under Jesus, you can call things out that are wrong and clear and evil without saying, but I would never do that. Or I could never do that. Or I'm not a person like that. Jesus says, measure for measure, do not judge. But here's the problem. As followers of Jesus, oftentimes that's not how we do it. We don't do measure for measure. We want one measure for us, and we want another measure for other people. We want grace for us, and we want works for other people. I remember years ago, we had a friend who had the obnoxious, no judgment, had the obnoxious habit. He would say, he would say the exact same thing today. But the obnoxious habit of every time we're at a pub where there was a pool table, as the game started, he would say, now remember, if you don't sink a ball, it's pants down around the table. So the rule was, if someone beat you and you didn't sink a single ball, the penalty was, like, you had to fully dack yourself and around the table, in the room, in front of everyone. And if you were losing a game significantly and you hadn't sunk anything, he'd be up beside you going, like, it's going to be pants down around the table, mate, like, all this kind of stuff. Never ended up happening until one time we were in neutral bay, he was losing, and as the game went on, it was coming clearer and clearer that he was getting closer and closer to the line and a crowd started to gather because he had such a reputation for doing this that people were like, we want to see if this is going to go down. And it happened. He lost without sinking a single ball. And as soon as he did, everyone was like, bounce down around the table. And he just immediately was deflecting. He's like, nah, it's just banter and like all this kind of stuff and whatever and refused to do it. And we're like, we know you would have absolutely forced anyone else to do it. But he wanted one standard for everyone else and another standard for himself. And you can laugh about it, but when it comes to the gospel, don't we do the same? When it comes to my relationship with God, you're like, grace, I need grace. And when it comes to how we treat other people, it's works. How could you have done that? We expect for God to suffer fools gladly, but we don't suffer fools gladly. When people offend us, or affect us, or their actions affect us, we can turn quickly. We use the measure of grace for ourselves and hope that they will use it for us as well. And yet when it comes to them, we want works. You did this, you deserve to be punished. Jesus says, no way, one measure, measure for measure. Whatever one you use, be consistent with it. If it's grace, then grace all the way. If it's works, then works all the way. But know what's coming at the end. And he says, the reason to do this is because otherwise you're going to look foolish. Look at what he says in Matthew 7, 3 to 5. He says... Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Well, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's meant to be a funny image. The idea that you'd be trying to do a delicate surgical procedure on your brother's eye to get a speck out whilst having, like, being impaled virtually on a post through your own eye, as if you could even actually do it. The idea is it's meant to be funny. You're like, one, how? Or two, why? why the, the, obviously, the clear priority is, look, bro, you're, you're bleeding from the head. Like, <laughs> s- s- sort that out first. We can worry about specs later. 
But Jesus says it's as laughable and ridiculous when we judge others. When we go to them, how could you have done that? How foolish. I would never have done that. I would never have acted like that, thought like that, spoke like that, dressed like that. He says we need to correct someone, and he does say to correct someone. He doesn't say that tolerance is just ignoring when issues are in their life. That's not love. But he says when you do it, do it with humility. As someone who struggles with the exact same thing, as someone who has the exact same heart. And that's a very different tone, isn't it? That's a very different start to a conversation. To enter, come into a conversation saying, listen, I'm going to tell you what's up. I know how to do things. You don't. You're a moron. You're an idiot. When you get correction like that, does it go well? No, it doesn't. In fact, I reckon, for me, it's a spiritual barometer to know how closely I'm walking with God, how clearly I'm seeing the grace of the cross by how I go when Mel says to me, do you mind if we talk about something? If immediately I find myself recruiting the team of lawyers in my mind who are going to completely write off her character and why she has no moral authority to tell me what to do and to point out sin in my life, I know I'm not walking closely with Jesus. But if I can hear it, if I can invite it even, if I'm open to it, it's because I know that I'm a sinner in need of grace. She's not telling me anything new. It's not a big deal. She's not judging me. I don't have to be so sensitive or precious about myself. She's, not, she's just loving me. See, if you obey Jesus, if you hear his word here, if you understand the gospel, you'll be able to take criticism well. You won't be so defensive. You won't have to run a smear campaign in your mind of anyone who ever criticizes you to dismiss why it is that their criticisms are irrelevant. You won't be so defensive and combative. You won't be the kind of person who people tiptoe around because they're terrified of telling you anything wrong because you explode with anger every time they do. You won't have to be so defensive because you'll know that people can tell you things without judging it. And even if they do, that Christ is for you. If you obey Jesus, you'll be able to give criticism well. Instead of condescending people and coming down on them and talking to them like they're idiots or, or you're doing everything you can to pretend that you're not thinking that and they can sense it anyway, you will be able to humbly correct people. And they will sense that. They will feel that. As you come alongside them and say, look, I want to point something out in your life, not because like this is something I would or could never do, but because in every way I could. And I would love it if someone were to speak to me into my life if this were happening. You've got to take criticism well and give criticism well. Is that what our church life is like? Is that what your missional community is like? What your DNA group is like? Do we avoid talking about hard things because we judge other people and we're worried about being judged? Are we just too judgmental? It should be the case that within the church you can call out really directly sin without the sense of judging or being judged. There should be a place of radical honesty about things and radical clarity and yet radical love. It shouldn't be the kind of place where we avoid talking about hard things because in the end we're just too sensitive and we really use the measure of works and not grace and we don't really believe that all our identity is found in Christ. Now it should be a place where this is lived out and played out. That's what Jesus would have his church be. That's why it's in the Sermon on the Mount. But with that also there is a warning. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, it's not about behavior, it's about what behavior reveals about the heart. If it's the case that you judge mostly on the basis of works, Jesus is saying, be warned, you may not have encountered real grace. 
If you're constantly judging, if you judge yourself and others by the measure of works and their worth and value is in those kind of things, if you struggle to have compassion or grace or kindness or mercy on other people in the same way that God has had kindness and mercy on you, you may not have encountered the true grace of the cross. You may be operating on a basis of works. And if you're to be judged on that, the results will not be good. There may be a time to reflect deeply on that and whether you've really understood the depths of the grace of the cross and whether it's affecting the way that you relate to other people. So Jesus is saying it can't be separated. Measure for measure. The measure you use is what we used against you. Jesus' words aren't idle. Judge not that you not be judged. Know his grace. May we have a clear and sufficient vision of the grace of the cross that it would lead us to be a radically tolerant people that it wouldn't just be words, but that we genuinely would not see ourselves in relation to others, but in relation to Jesus, and know there our sin, but also the depths of his love and grace for us in Christ. And we know that judging others is logically incompatible with the gospel. We can't say we believe all these things of the gospel and yet still think people are better or worse than us. Let's pray that he would give us a clear vision of the gospel, that we might live it out. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you alone judge rightly, that you alone sit on the throne of the universe, that you alone are holy and good. And we pray that we would be humble. As we call to mind your love, we call to mind the sacrifice that was required to pay for our sin. We remember that you have loved us with an everlasting love, but that it was a costly love, that the blood of Christ was spilled on our behalf and that this might move us to not judge, to not sit there and think as though others around us are worse than us, to stand in judgment over people as though we had the right of God to do so. And Father, we pray that even in our community that it would be obvious that what permeates this community is love and not judgment, that it would be obvious from the inside and out that we know the grace of Jesus that we know how much you have done for us in him and that it would lead us to live transformed lives. And Father, we pray that in all of this that you would be glorified in the joy of your people. Amen.